0: Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Wednesday, April 26th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. House resolution would seek a Ukrainian victory. So Representative Joe Wilson, he's a Republican from South Carolina. He's planning to introduce a resolution in the House that would declare it is U.S. policy to seek a Ukrainian victory against Russia, which includes returning all Russian-controlled territory to Kiev, including Crimea. So according to Yahoo News, the resolution, quote, affirms that it is the policy of the United States to see Ukraine victorious against the invasion and restored to its internationally recognized 1991 borders, end quote. So again, that means uh, Crimea as well. So the resolution will be co-sponsored by Representative Steve Cohen. He's a Democrat from Tennessee, so it's a bipartisan resolution it will need to make it through the house foreign affairs committee before being put to the floor for a full house vote and that committee is chaired by rep michael mccall republican from texas and he's been very hawkish calling on president biden to arm ukraine with longer range weapons specifically so they could strike crimea that's what he said he wants to give them fighter jets and all that And the news of this resolution comes after these uh, leaks that revealed the Biden administration does not think Ukraine can regain territory in its expected counteroffensive. That was reaffirmed by that Politico article that I went over yesterday that said the Biden administration is preparing for a failed Ukrainian counteroffensive. There was also a story in the New York Times the same day that was pretty similar. Uh, So there's a lot of signs that the U.S. does not think Ukraine can really Win, you know, based on their definition of victory. And the Pentagon has also told Congress that it's unlikely Ukraine will be able to retake Crimea. There's been, you know, a lot of doubt about that. Despite these U.S. assessments, Zelensky and his top aides still maintain that peace talks with Russia cannot happen until Russia is expelled from Crimea and the territory it's captured since launching the invasion last year. So making it official U.S. policy to support these goals would guarantee a prolonged conflict and it would risk an escalation that could lead to a direct Russia-NATO clash. Secretary of State Antony Blinken, of all people, has previously acknowledged that a Ukrainian attempt to retake Crimea would cross a red line for Putin. So this gives you a good idea of uh, the mindset of the people that support a resolution like this. A congressional staffer who supports the resolution told Yahoo News that the bill, quote, demonstrates the wide support in Congress for Ukrainian victory. We all need to move beyond as long as it takes and embrace Ukrainian victory as our rallying cry in order for Ukraine to win the war this year, end quote. So I'm not sure how much support this resolution is going to get. I know that the vast majority of Congress, including Republicans, the majority of them still support arming Ukraine, and a lot of them think that Biden hasn't has, should do more again by sending fighter jets and all that. Um, but would they sign off on a resolution like this that basically would guarantee, you know, an open-ended conflict with no end in sight, which is you know where we're at right now? And while there are all these signs and and those leaks and not just, you know, the the leaked documents, but, you know, the things that U.S. officials have been telling the media, like that political story that they just don't think Ukraine can win, basically. Um, So are they going to put their names on something like this? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if they do, uh, but uh, we'll see uh, what becomes of this resolution. All right, the next one here, Russian arms control officials says that serious talks with the U.S. are not possible. So Vladimir Yermakov, who is the director of the Russian Foreign Ministry's arms control department, he said on Tuesday that serious talks with the U.S. and other Western countries are not possible. He said, quote, in the given circumstances, no major negotiations can be conducted with the United States or the West in general, end quote. Yermakov also said that Russia might scrap its moratorium on the deployment of short and medium-range land-based missiles previously banned under the Intermediate-Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, that's the INF, and the Trump administration withdrew from that in 2019. The U.S. accused Russia of violating the treaty by developing a new cruise missile. The INF banned ground-launched missiles with a range between 310 to 3,400 miles. Russia insisted that this missile, which is the 9M729, only had a range of up to 298 miles. The Trump administration didn't buy it, and they tore up the treaty anyway. And they didn't you know, put any diplomatic effort into salvaging it or you know, try to replace it with something. They just tore it up. And Russia also accused the U.S. of potentially violating the treaty by establishing the Aegis uh, offshore missile defense systems in Romania and Poland. So these are systems designed for uh, ships, but this is a land-based version version and they use MK41 vertical launchers and those can fit tomahawk missiles, which again are typically launched from ships and they have a range of over a thousand miles. So a land-based version of that does violate the INF but the US has not th- not that I know of, not that we know of they haven't deployed the tomahawk missiles there, but it's possible that they could. And Russia had a big problem with that. Uh, it caused a lot of tension between the U.S. and Moscow. And since pulling out of the INF, the U.S. has been developing a ground launch system for the Tomahawk. Uh, different systems besides uh, this this one that's in Poland and Romania. And this could eventually be deployed to Japan. At least that seems to be the plan. So Yermakov said that depending on you know these U.S. made missiles that might be deployed to the Asia Pacific region, and he. Mentioned Japan. He said their range, you know, depending on what the U.S. deploys, they might deploy some of these missiles as well. And he said Russia's decision on whether or not to stick to the moratorium on short and medium range missile deployments depends on the range of the U.S. missiles. He added, quote, but even now we can say with confidence that the destabilizing military programs of the United States and their allies have been making our moratorium increasingly fragile both with regard to the Asia-Pacific region and Europe, end quote. So in the lead up to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russia was seeking a mutual moratorium with the U.S. on the deployment of previously banned INF missiles in Europe. So if you look at, this was when Russia submitted their security uh, concerns to the U.S., and chief among them was Ukraine and NATO. They wanted a guarantee that Ukraine would not join NATO. The U.S. did not even entertain that idea. As a State Department official admitted, it was never seriously on the table. Um, they didn't also didn't entertain the idea of this moratorium on the INF missiles. But one thing that they did offer Russia was inspections of these systems in Poland and Romania to make sure that the Tomahawk missiles were not deployed there. But again, these talks obviously did not go anywhere, did not succeed because the U.S. wasn't really engaging in, in their main gripes. Um, so... And this shows, you know, these comments show that arms control, you know, just the idea of Russia and the U.S. coming to some agreement on these types of missiles is just can't even imagine that happening right now, especially Russia paused its participation in New Start. So you got to figure any arms control talks that happen will probably focus on that at first before they get to anything else. And then that treaty is going to be replaced. It expires in 2026. So it's just a very, we're in a very bad situation when it comes to arms control between the U.S. and Russia. All right, the next one here, South Korea's Yoon says that U.S. spying will not impact ties. So South Korean President Yoon suk Yeol told NBC News that the recent leak of Pentagon documents that exposed U.S. spying on Seoul would not impact ties between the two nations. He said, quote, I believe that this matter is no reason to shake the ironclad trust that supports the U.S.-South Korea alliance because it is based on shared values like freedom, end quote. So the leaked documents enraged South Korea's opposition, but Yoon's government has downplayed the spying as it seeks to strengthen the U.S.-South Korean military alliance. And Yoon made, Yoon made these comments from the U.S. He arrived on Monday. And he is due to hold a summit with Biden on Wednesday. He's going to address Congress on Thursday. It's a big visit. He's in D.C. for at least five days, I believe. And so what the the spying uh, showed, the documents showed, was a conversation between two South Korean officials. They were talking about concerns that they had about selling ammunition to the U.S., worrying that it would end up in Ukraine and that it would violate South Korea's policy of not sending arms into conflict zones. So one possible workaround of this policy that they discussed was selling ammo to Poland with an agreement that Warsaw would be the end user, but knowing that the ammo would eventually end up in Ukraine. And since these leaks came out, South Korea has confirmed it plans to go ahead with a weapon sale to Poland. Uh, but Yoon's visit to Washington, it comes amid soaring tensions on the Korean peninsula. Washington and Seoul have resumed the massive war games that were paused for years Uh, and this includes the deployment of U.S. bombers and other assets to South Korea. The war games have provoked more North Korean missile tests, and there's no end in sight to the tensions as both sides continue tit-for-tat escalations. So Yoon is expected to seek more guarantees from Biden when it comes to protection under the U.S. nuclear umbrella. Yoon has previously suggested that the U.S. should redeploy nuclear weapons to the Korean Peninsula, and he also warned that Seoul could develop its own making him the first South Korean leader to suggest something like that, that they could make nukes uh, since 1991. And 1991 was the year that the U.S. pulled its nukes off the Korean Peninsula. And they're expected to make some kind of announcement in this regard uh, to give South Korea more guarantees when it comes to nuclear, their, their nuclear protection so who knows what that's going to be? And I think Biden's going to give Yoon whatever he wants because he wants to enlist South Korea and in its, in its campaign against China, both economically. And I think just building up in South Korea is another thing that they could use against China, even though it is also about North Korea, obviously. But it's also a lot about China as well, all of this stuff that's going on. And Yoon recently angered China by calling Taiwan a global issue. He's been talking about Taiwan a lot and the U.S. and and Biden and Yoon are expected to discuss Taiwan. So they might issue some kind of statement that makes China mad. All right. The next one here, uh, Venezuela's Guaido lands in the U.S. seeking refuge. So Venezuelan opposition figure Juan Guaido, who the U.S. backed in a failed coup attempt against Venezuelan president Nicolas Maduro landed in Miami on Tuesday and is seeking refuge in the U.S. So the U.S. recognized Guaido as the interim president in 2019, and that was the same year of the attempted coup. The Trump administration's backing of Guaido and the imposition of crippling sanctions on Venezuela were part of a failed regime change effort. Over the years, Guaido lost what little support he had in Venezuela, and the U.S.-backed Venezuelan opposition recently removed him as interim president And they dissolved the interim government, which never had any real power besides the ability to access some of Venezuela's offshore assets and foreign embassies. Guaido flew to the U.S. So this is a wacky story. I don't know exactly what happened here, but Guaido flew to the U.S. after entering Colombia, where Colombia's president, Gustavo Petro, is hosting an international conference on Venezuela. And it includes diplomats from 20 countries. So Guaido made it to, he entered Colombia and he claimed that he was expelled from the country. He put posted a video while he was on the plane saying that, you know, Colombia is, is taking the side of the dictatorship in Venezuela, just something like that. But Colombian officials, including the president Petro, they denied that Guaido was expelled. Petro wrote on Twitter, quote, Mr. Guaido was not expelled and it is better that this lie does not appear in politics, end quote. Colombian authorities said that Guaido entered Colombia irregularly and escorted him. And they escorted him to the airport for a flight to the U S and the Guaido has family in the U S his mother and his brother live, live here. So the state department later said that American diplomats in Colombia helped bring Guaido to the U S. So it seemed like he just made a drama of going to Colombia and getting kicked out, but I guess he wasn't invited to the conference. And the Biden administration has kept Venezuela under crippling economic sanctions, and has only issued a limited, uh, a limited license to Chevron, allowing the company to resume pumping oil in Venezuela. That's all they've done. Uh, an envoy for Venezuela's opposition recently called on the U.S. to lift sanctions on Venezuela, and this is a significant departure from Guaido, who, you know, he favored the sanctions and foreign military intervention to put him in power. And that's why he lost little, what little support he had. You know, he was calling for foreign military intervention and, you know, people usually don't like that uh, no matter what they think of the ruling government. Um, all right. But it looks like why well, days are over and, you know, he might end up, who knows, working for a think tank or something in DC. <laughs> um, all right. The next one here, the Taliban kills an ISIS K leader behind the Kabul airport bombing. So U.S. officials said on Tuesday that the Taliban has killed an ISIS-K leader that was responsible for the suicide bombing at the Kabul airport during the U.S. evacuation from Afghanistan. And that bombing killed 170 Afghan civilians and 13 American troops. So a U.S. official. So there's. Story broke, and it was just everywhere. And every media outlet cited, you know, quoted unnamed U.S. officials saying that they have high confidence that this individual ISIS K member that the Taliban killed was the one who uh, planned out this attack on the airport. They call him the mastermind of the attack, and of course, this was during that hectic time when the U.S. was trying to evacuate everybody from Afghanistan. And there was just huge crowds entering the, the airport and the suicide bombing took place right outside the gate. So it killed a lot of people. Uh, but they're not releasing this guy's name. Uh, so there's kind of a lot of vague things about this. They, they said that the government, the US was not involved in the Taliban operation. They said it took place in re- recent weeks. They also said that the U.S. was not notified by the Taliban and that U.S. officials said they came to the conclusion through intelligence gathering. The Taliban is a sworn enemy of ISIS-K. They've been fighting the group both before and after the U.S. withdrawal. I just had to mention, because this, back in 2020, I covered this story that was first reported by the Washington Post that revealed the U.S. was providing the Taliban with air support against ISIS-K during battles in Afghanistan's northeastern Kunar province. And this was in 2019. I mean, 2018 and 2019 were the heaviest uh, U.S. bombings in Afghanistan. The heaviest years, you know, Afghanistan was bombed by the U.S. the most in 2018 and 2019, except for the initial invasion in 2001. In 2002, so the U.S. was really ramping up its war against the Taliban while also helping them fight ISIS. And you know, with this what they called the Taliban Air Force, um, it was a JSOC unit that called themselves that. Which I just think it's a huge story that the U.S. was was had an air force for the Taliban while still fighting against them, and it barely got noticed. So I always just like to mention it when we talk about ISIS K and the Taliban. And a few days after the Kabul airport bombing, another thing that we need to mention uh, is that the U.S. launched a drone strike in the Afghan capital on August 29th, 2021. It killed 10 civilians, including seven children. The Pentagon initially claimed that the strike killed ISIS-K members and prevented another airport attack, but they later admitted it only killed civilians. Documents obtained by the New York Times revealed that the military was aware almost immediately that civilians were killed in the strike, but they lied about it to the media. The Pentagon investigated the drone strike. They investigated themselves, found no wrongdoing, and they decided that nobody should be punished for the slaughter of those 10 Afghan civilians. Um, So who knows what the story is with that? It'll be interesting to see what the Taliban says. I haven't seen a response from them yet. Uh, all right, the next one here. Actually, I got to uh, mention again that it is our fundraiser. And we, uh, you could go to antiwar.com slash donate to support us. Um, you know, this is how we get by. This is how we operate is by relying on our readers. That's, that's how it, antiwar.com has always functioned. That's how we've been able to maintain our independence. And this editorial line, this non-interventionist anti-war, you know, through all these wars, through decades of war, The site was founded in 95 and this letter that we have from Ted Galen Carpenter is about how antiwar.com has always been, you know, opposed to the U S war machine. And, um, you know, despite everything that's, that's working against us. I mean, I was mentioned yesterday, all the money that's being spent on this war in Ukraine and that's being spent by the Pentagon. And a lot of that there's information warfare and we see how the mainstream press you know reacts to these leaks going after the leaker instead of trying to find more of the documents and reporting on them uh that's just you know the the atmosphere that we're up against so please if you like this show if you read antiwar.com go to antiwar.com slash donate whatever you can contribute uh please help us out you can do a monthly donation one-time donation uh whatever you can do but uh you know let's get this thing started on the right foot Uh, So we could finish it quickly and we could focus on the important stuff. All right, the next one here. uh, So this was uh, the talks happened in Moscow today between Syria and Turkey, and they discussed the potential withdrawal of Turkish troops from Syria. So the Syrian defense ministry said on Tuesday that the issue of withdrawing Turkish troops from northern Syria was discussed during talks in Moscow between the defense minister's and intelligence chiefs of Syria, Turkey, Russia, and Iran. The talks are part of a Russian effort to broker a normalization deal between Syria and Turkey, which started in December. So no breakthroughs were made on Tuesday, but the talks were described as constructive. And Syria's foreign minister reaffirmed earlier in the day that any normalization deal with Ankara hinges on a Turkish withdrawal. He said, quote, it is impossible to talk about normalizing relations with Turkey amid its occupation of Syria's northern areas, end quote. Another topic of discussion was the issue of Syrian refugees returning to their country. The Russian defense ministry said that the four nations, quote, reaffirmed their adherence to the preservation of Syria's territorial integrity and the need to step up efforts to allow a speedy return of Syrian refugees, end quote. Um. So again, you know, this would be a big deal and this could be a big step. You know, it's not clear from these talks really if a deal is really imminent or it it could take a while. You know, this is uh, the third round of talks I think they've held and and there hasn't been any really uh, details like saying, okay, we think this is the timeline, maybe a few months from now, a few weeks when there's going to be a deal. So I'm not sure how this could still take a while. It might be a long process, but. If a deal is reached here, it'll be significant and it could really be a big step in ending the war and it'll be another thing that might make the U.S. have to eventually leave Syria along with Syria's normalization with uh, its neighbors. All right, so the next one here, uh, this is from the South China Morning Post and a Taiwanese activist faces secession charges in mainland China. And this is apparently the first time uh, that something like this Has happened, according to the South China Morning Post. So, this report says that Taiwanese activist Yang Chi Yuan, who was detained in the mainland eight months ago, will face secession charges, Beijing has announced. The case marks the first time that a person from Taiwan will face charges of separatism in a mainland court and comes at a time of heightened geopolitical tensions around the self ruled island. So Yang has officially been arrested and transferred to the public prosecutor's office in Wenzhou for further action, the Supreme People's uh, Procuratoria in Beijing announced on Tuesday. So no date for the prosecution was given. Taiwan's top cross-strait policy planner, the Mainland Affairs Council, called for his swift release. It said repeated requests for his safe return had been ignored since he was held in August and that such random arrests had sparked alarm in the island. So there's a reason why this he was arrested in August. Um, he was detained shortly after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan, and Beijing announced its intention to crack down on Taiwanese separatists. So um, this is another case of, you know, what... The U.S. kind of provoking China, you know, doesn't justify what China's doing or anything, but it shows. I mean, this is specifically in response to their increasing ties with the U.S. that they're that they're arresting and trying to prosecute this guy, and this could become uh, more of a a common thing. Uh, Hopefully, things cool down after this next election. Uh, If if the Kuomintang Party wins in 2024 and they try to ease tensions, but I think we're probably going to see more of this. And again, this comes. you know, he was arrested on August 3rd, which was as Pelosi concluded her visit to Taipei. And besides this guy getting arrested, it resulted in all this Chinese military pressure on Taiwan. Um, that, you know, I'm always covering and talking about, but this is just another aspect of it. All right. The last one here, this is from the Washington Post, and it's an interview with Daniel Ellsberg, the leaker of the Pentagon Papers, who... Uh, and it's he discussed the discord leaks and you know the things that he had to say drawing some parallels to his release of the pentagon papers during the vietnam war basically what he said is it's a similar thing vietnam war the pentagon papers you know the the us the whole thing was that they knew it was a stalemate they knew they couldn't win but they were just continuing the war and lying to the american people about it well it sounds pretty familiar because that seems to be what's happening uh in ukraine and he also you know dismisses the idea that What Teixeira leaked, you know, he did acknowledge that, you know, Teixeira, if this story is true about him, is different than Ellsberg is, you know, isn't uh, definitely did it for different reasons. But he dismissed the idea that what he leaked, you know, put anybody in danger or was bad for the U.S. It sounds like he thinks the this information was for the public good. Uh, but go check that out, and we have some good viewpoints as well. One from Ted Snyder: the world is changing, but is Washington finally noticing? One from Connor O'Keefe over at the Mises Institute: Ukraine War offers glimpse at modern conscription. One from Ramsey Baroud: losing deterrence: how Palestinian Arab resistance changed the rules of war with Israel. One from Stephen Kinzer over at, uh, usually writes at the Boston globe. Yes. The Boston globe, uh, world war II analogies are about as useful today as carrier pigeons. And then the spotlight is from B- Bradley Devlin at the American conservative Ukraine plans for world war three. Uh, but that's everything again, help us out with our fundraiser, anti slash donate. You could also help out by telling uh, people about antiwar.com, spreading it around, sharing our articles, sharing the show, uh, subscribing to the YouTube channel or the rumble channel or the odyssey channel or leaving a review where you listen to podcasts that really helps uh, a lot or commenting, just saying, Hey, this show's cool or whatever. You could say bad things too, Uh, but that's it for me for today. I'll be back tomorrow. Thanks for listening.